Welcome to the FNL webcast. My name is Vicky Denton and I'm your host. Our guest today is Monica Johansson. Monica is with the Volvo Group. She is the fuel and energy analyst at Volvo Group. She started in 2019. Prior to that, she worked for Volvo Cars and uh, Monica has been uh, involved in the industry for quite a long time. She has a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering degree and a PhD in Internal Combustion Engines from Chalmers Technical University. So welcome to FNL Webcast, Monica. Thank you very much and thank you for this nice introduction. So Monica, you were just saying before we started uh, recording that you just run a race this week. And this was a 24-hour race. Tell us about your experience. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, kind of maybe it sounds a little bit crazy. And uh, because I'm, as you mentioned, I'm the fuel and energy analyst at the Volvo Group. But I also like to introduce myself as an ultra runner because I do this kind of ultra races. And uh, last weekend, I was participating in um, one ultra race, uh, 24 hours. And it was an indoor race. And usually I prefer going outdoors and explore things in the forest. So this was my first time running indoors and running for 24 hours uh, without stopping. And that was uh, quite an experience and a challenge. And um, we started uh, on Saturday at 11 o'clock. And then we were running the whole day until midnight. And we continue until 11 on Sunday. And 24 hours uh, can be quite a long time if you're only running. And um, it was. But it was also kind of... Um, funny so to say because uh, there was um, many of my friends there running as well so you can share on each other and you can stop sometimes eating something from you know this uh, goodie table where you have all this uh, food and uh, drinks etc uh, and you can uh, I mean talk to some people for for some times and just uh, go in to yourself and trying to um, uh, just meet yourself, how to say, because it's, I, I ran 390 laps on this trap <laughs> track. And uh, yeah, it uh, was uh, 147 kilometers in the end. So that's almost an ultra marathon, the maximum is about 150 kilometers, or there's no maximum when you talk about ultra marathons. Uh, there is no maximum. Ultra marathon is everything above a marathon distance, which is 42 kilometers. So everything uh, more than that is an ultra marathon. And I can say the winner of uh, this 24 hour race, um, he ran 250 kilometers. How often do you run? I mean, in one year, how many ultra marathons do you participate in? Um, not not so many ultra marathons because um, it takes so much effort, both in preparation and also during the race. And afterwards, you need to recover uh, some. So maybe like uh, four or five ultra marathons a year. But I do run every day. 
uh, and I've been running, I've been on a run streak for, I actually counted the days because uh, of today. So uh, I've been running every day for 1,170 days, uh, but that's only m minimum uh, 20 minutes. So, uh, but these ultra marathons is maybe like uh, five times a year. A uh, 20 minute run for you would be how many kilometers? Oh, it depends. I can say yesterday's, it was only two kilometers <laughs> because uh, my legs were a little bit stiff. So, uh, yeah. So what do you have to do to prepare for, a, for an ultra marathon? How many days do you have to prepare? And then post marathon, what do you have to do to recover? Yes. Um, yeah, but before uh, the race, I can say for an ultra marathon, you prepare for years. Because I started to run marathons for um, five years ago, and I thought that was quite <laughs> uh, a distance. Uh, it is. A marathon is 42 kilometers, and that's very long. Uh, but then um, I started to be more interested in longer races. So when I prepare, I don't think like, oh, I have an ultramarathon in 10 weeks or five weeks. I more see it over years, and I prepare for... I have like a yearly plan and um, since I run every day, my body is used to be out, out running all the times. Uh, but I also have this target or goal of taking minimum 20,000 steps every day um, in average. And I've been doing that for two years because that's also an ultra marathon is a lot of steps and um, you walk also a lot during this kind of race because you need to relax sometimes of the race. So if you your body is prepared for these many steps every day, um, it's easier to handle an ultramarathon. No, and I also try to sleep a lot. Uh, that's my recovery. So I, I sleep uh, eight hours every night. And um, that, that, that that's... M kind of challenging for me because I also work a lot and I do a training and I also have a family so but I don't um, I don't watch I don't want watch so much tv or relax in the sofa after a day at work I rather go to the forest and relaxing while I'm running so I think that's uh, my 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 yeah the the best preparation is uh, running every day minimum 20 minutes and taking these 20,000 steps uh, and also sleep eight hours every night. That's the best preparation, I would say. And breathing is very important when you're running. I mean, I, it's important when you're on, a, on any regular day anyway, but breathing especially for a marathon is, is very cr critical, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's very important because you, you also need to keep the pulse down. You shouldn't have like really high maximum pulse you need to keep it down and really try to lower your shoulders and try to breathe down <laughs> to your tummy uh, and try to be relaxed during running not to have like this tension in your body like more to relax and I go really slow when I'm running it's like some people they can walk past me <laughs> because I'm running so slow but when you're gonna run for so many hours you need to take it really really slow and Try to get your flow. And uh, yeah. Uh, but then you also asked me about um, after uh, a run, how, how I do uh, take care of my body after the run. And 
then, then I really need to eat a lot. <laughs> I get so hungry afterwards. Uh, like uh, many days after, I'm just eating everything I can come over. And uh, uh, But then, I, of course, it's important to eat food and not only like uh, <laughs> trash. <laughs> you, you should eat food and uh, like uh, vegetables and fruits and so on. So you refill, refuel your body with a lot of energy and um, as well sleep. And um, usually I also play a game with my kids. We play like spa. So they, they get paid by leftovers from my candy, from my race. And then they can do some massage on my shoulders and back. And um, yeah, I think we enjoy that game, all of us. <laughs> so when did you start running and why did you start running? I don't know when I started running, but I maybe when I was 20 or something, when I started to study, because then I thought it was a, a good sport because you could do it whenever you had time uh, so but I wasn't running regularly I was uh, running now and then and um, I was starting with this Göteborg uh, it's called it's a half marathon here in Gothenburg uh, and I was doing my first race in let's see it was 04 so it's um, 17 years ago I was doing this half marathon and I can say after that half marathon, I had so much pain in my body, even more than an ultra marathon. <laughs> it was, it was crazy for after only 21 kilometers, it was worse pain than now. So I think I'm, I'm trying to, and then I was doing this um, uh, half marathon every year here in Gothenburg yeah. Uh, but then, as I said, I started with uh, marathons after my uh, my youngest child was born. Uh, so five years ago, I started to run marathons and then starting with ultra marathons three years ago. And what do you find satisfying about running, about running these races? Yeah, and uh, before I was only running this short distance, like 10K and 21K, and then running these kind of races, it was more stressful. It was always about getting the best time and uh, the fastest or, I mean, it was more a competition. But running these ultra marathons is more about getting out and um, it's more of an adventure, uh, especially if you're running 100 miles because it's so long distance and so many things can happen during the race. So actually when you start, you don't even know if you're getting to the finish line. If you run a marathon, for example, or a half marathon, you always know you will reach the finish line. Maybe you will not be so satisfied with the time, but you will always, always reach the finish line. But with an ultramarathon, it's always, always about how to prepare and, and how to be smart in uh, actually getting to the finish line because you need to be smart, not running too fast in the beginning. You need to eat a lot because uh, if you are getting out of energy, you will not reach the finish line. Uh, you need also to be able to handle when you are getting tired because you will run more than 24 hours. My races are sometimes up to 37 hours. And you don't sleep during this time. So you need to handle, when you're getting this tired, you need to handle this uh, sleepness and uh, how to get over it. But it's so fantastic of uh, exploring 
the sunset, the sunrise and the darkness. You only are out with your flashlight and you see the stars and uh, the forest. It's so dark and uh, and it's so quiet and it's so amazing. So it's just an adventure and I love it. And uh, it's as I said, it's a lot about preparation and it's you need to prepare for what kind of clothes, what kind of shoes you should wear and what kind of energies you should, because you're always running with a, a backpack, uh, what kind of energy you should bring and what drinks. And and also sometimes um, you need to download the track to your watch. So you need to follow the track in your watch because you don't know where to run. And that's also an adventure because uh, yeah, sometimes you are getting lost and then you need to find back to the track again. And uh, yeah, you, you explore a lot during these kind of races. And I think that's really what's got me into this kind of uh, running. It's uh, it's this adventure. Have you done races outside of Sweden? Well, not uh, ultra races, only marathons. Uh, I've been in Vienna and in um, uh, Mallorca and... Uh, yeah, and also in France, in Lyon, I've been running uh, marathons, but never these ultra marathons. But um, I have this uh, like bucket list of these kind of races um, abroad as well. And there are many of these hundred miles that I would like to participate in, of course. So what is what is, what are the countries included in your bucket list, Monica? Uh, well, there is this uh, big race in uh, in France. It starts in Chamonix. It's in the Alps. It's called UTMB. It's Ultra Train Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. Uh, and then there is one in um, US. It's called uh, the Western States uh, 100 miles. And then you have these fantastic races in Scotland, and they are over many day many days. And uh, you sleep also. You have like a camp so but you don't need to bring your tent and so on uh, the the organization is bringing everything between the camps and you are running for like six days and up in scotland and it's so amazing in nature there so i would like to go there so do you usually have your um family along with you when you're running these long races no <laughs> They they are not into this so much. They they rather stay home. And uh, when I come home, I, I like to speak about these races. But uh, unfortunately, they are not so interested. But but I think I think they are proud of me, even though they may maybe not say it so often. But um, no. But I I have my friends and uh, uh, my ultra friends, and they are really you know uh, going with me to races, and we do this together. So. I don't feel alone at all. Do you go with your colleagues at Volvo or are this uh, uh, friends outside of work? No, it's actually friends outside of work. And I, I met them uh, through Facebook and Instagram and so on. And they really become so great friends. But actually, I found out that I have ultra friends at Volvo as well. Because um, in our department, we are... Uh, I think we are six uh, ultra runners. So, but but I didn't know them before. But now I I get to know them through this ultra running. So it's great. So tell us a little bit about your work now. Uh, you're actually involved in a lot of alternative fuels for Volvo. 
tell us a little bit about about what you're doing there. Yes. Um, so uh, you already said in the beginning that I've been working in this field for many years, and that's correct because I was doing my PhD at Chalmers, uh, working with alternative fuels for the diesel engines. So I was actually running these combustion engines with different kind of alternative fuels. And then I was working at Volvo Cars, uh, also working with the fuel-related topics for eight years. And then finally, I find my dream work now at uh, Volvo. And um, I'm uh, working with all kinds of fuels that we have in our vehicles today, uh, diesel and gas and um, alternatives, of course. Uh, but also what kind of fuels we will have in the future. And um, in the future, we we will have uh, renewable fuels and renewable energy carrier, I should say, maybe. And hydrogen is uh, really one of the uh, most interesting fuels, I should say. Maybe it's because I'm working so much with it. Uh, but I think um, hydrogen has... Uh, uh, great potential in order to to lower the the CO two emissions globally, but also reducing the the tailpipe emissions of um, other uh, uh, poison emissions, uh, as for example um, nitric oxides and particulate matter and uh, other emissions. So I think it has great potential. And since Volvo. Uh, we have signed this uh, Paris Agreement now, and we will lower the the CO two emissions uh, by forty percent uh, in the the fleet until twenty thirty, and it's only nine eight years left. So we we have a huge challenge in front of us, but I think that's very interesting with my work as well because we really need to find this this way to lower our CO two uh, footprint as well as meeting this uh, requirement and uh, for for uh, local emissions and after treatment uh, so we need to reduce both uh, uh, the exhaust emissions and uh, the co2 emissions so that's very interesting with my work now so is hydrogen basically the main fuel that's going to be applied uh across um i would say for heavy duty, uh, for trucks, for buses, for commercial vehicles? Yeah, in Volvo's strategy for um, uh, for reducing the CO2 emissions, we have this electric propulsion, uh, which will be the main part. And electric propulsion will contain of both uh, battery electric vehicles, but also fuel cell electric vehicles. And I should say that they are not competing with each other uh, because they will, it's rather a compliment because uh, battery electric vehicles, uh, they are fantastic if you can recharge, for example, at your depot. When you are coming back uh, every day, you can recharge uh, where you have all your trucks. And also if you are running for, over day and you can fast charge uh, at some stops. Uh, but then there are some um, applications where you go, where you don't have this charging and you are running not the same uh, route every day because you maybe take different uh, deliveries and uh, uh, every day. So you need to refuel 
on different locations and maybe the the load is uh, yeah if it's very high high load and you will like to run longer distances then the the hydrogen will be a great complement to this battery electric vehicles but i i should also say that we will not uh, phase out uh, the combustion engine we will still have the combustion engine because there will be applications where we need it and um, but of course with combustion engines you need to have renewable fuels and it can be electrofuels it can be biofuels and of course we have our uh, gas lng engine with uh, that can operate on liquid biogas so uh, we will have this three the combustion engine we will have battery electric vehicles and of course uh, fuel cell electric vehicles operating on hydrogen so you're basically saying it really depends on what what would be the application um, the fuel will have to fit the application. How about regional requirements? Um, Volvo is a, an international company. You also operate not only in Europe, but also in Asia. What would be different? How, how would Asia be different from Europe in terms of the future fuel for, for Volvo vehicles? I think that's a very important comment here because we we are a global company and uh, developing only one engine uh, for only one region will not be (laughs) uh, applicable for us because we need to develop engines and uh, drive lines for um, the world, uh, the global. And uh, for Asia, for example, uh, there are some, uh, some places in Asia where renewable uh, electricity and renewable hydrogen uh, is not the biggest part of the electricity production. Of course, there are places where it will be possible to produce renewable electricity and renewable hydrogen. And I think there will be a lot of these hubs where you will be able to do this. Um, but I think it's very important to really look at the the well-to-wheel for a fuel in order to see and then it's not only about the, the CO2 emissions because uh, uh, we need to have sustainable fuels uh, in order to look at the complete life cycle uh, for a fuel. Um, and I know, uh, uh, for, for example, if you are looking at hydrogen production uh, in some countries, you really see that some of these uh, hydrogen can even have higher CO2 emission if you're looking in a well-to-wheel perspective. compared to diesel and then I don't think we should aim for having these um, uh, vehicles there because I think you really should look at the complete um, uh, well-to-wheel in order to reduce the emissions and uh, then of course we we have also these uh, biofuels and uh, we we have uh, standards for uh, uh, HVO for example and HVO is a very good fuel since it's a paraffinic fuel. And uh, we have seen very, very good results uh, operating on HVO fuels. But of course, the HVO fuels need to be sustainable uh, in order to meet this uh, requirement we have. Uh, and we have um, uh, FAME fuel, for example. We, have, we haven't seen so... Uh, 
so great because there are challenges with fame fuels, especially if you're operating on 100% fame. But of course, we in, in Europe, for example, we have a maximum 7% fame, and that's uh, perfect. Uh, but then if we are increasing the fame, I should say it depends on the quality of the fame fuel because there are fame fuels with very high quality and that works very well in our engines. But there are challenges with fame fuels uh, due to aging and uh, uh, water content, uh, etc. So you need to be very careful operating on this. Uh, but uh, with the HVO, we have seen uh, very good results operating on them. So the field problems would be kind of difficult to monitor if that's the case, because you don't really have control over the fuel that your customers are going to be using in their vehicles. Yeah, that, that might be a challenge, but of course we are looking into that, of, of course, as well. Uh, if it would be possible with uh, uh, some kind of a collaboration with the fuel producers, etc., in order, since we will have this target of uh, reducing the CO2 with 40% already 2030, uh, we need to work with these um, fuels that are used in our vehicles and the, the electricity and the hydrogen, of course, in order to meet this uh, target. And it's uh, very challenging. So it's difficult to control what our customers are fueling. Uh, but we need to work with that as well in order to meet this uh, target. And hydrogen still is really a fuel that, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a gray hydrogen and there's blue hydrogen and there's green hydrogen. In, uh, in Europe, uh, how much green hydrogen is available at this time? Yeah, yeah. I really like this question because... Uh, I'm doing a lot of, um, I mean, research and investigation on this because I think that is so important to have this green hydrogen. And we see now with all these reports coming that, I mean, the green, I mean, there are a few percent of uh, electrolyzed hydrogen produced uh, from water. But if it should be green hydrogen, you need to have renewable electricity as well. And I mean, that's not the, the case at the moment. Uh, but with all these new um, strategies coming up now, it's coming almost every week, new strategies. And uh, last year we have this um, uh, European strategy published and we, we see many, many investments now. Because I think the key here is actually to add more renewable electricity because the renewable electricity, it can be used both in our electrical vehicles, but also for producing hydrogen. And sometimes it's uh, it's actually the grid that is um, the stopping parameter here, because uh, sometimes you have a lot of renewable electricity, a uh, lot of renewable electricity, but you are not able to transport this electricity to the customer. And then I think this um, production of hydrogen could be a way in order to store this renewable electricity and make these kind of hubs where you can have other industries as well using this uh, green hydrogen. Because if we are looking at the data today, we see that hydrogen for transport is a very small part. It's uh, 
most hydrogen is most used in refineries and ammonia production. And I mean, if you can have collaboration with industries that are actually using a lot of hydrogen today, you can start producing green hydrogen uh, together and then just waiting for the trucks to come. I don't think it's the right way to go only producing hydrogen for uh, the transport sector because uh, many sectors will need this hydrogen and we need to work together and not only focusing on only one sector here. So uh, coming back to your questions about the green hydrogen, I see many uh, ongoing projects now. And for example, with Volvo now, we have a collaboration with a steel company in Sweden called Ovacostil where they will actually use uh, hydrogen in their process and uh, also oxygen, which is a byproduct of um, electrolysis. And then they will also have, uh, so they are using oxygen in their process and the leftover. So they are using oxygen and hydrogen and actually more oxygen than hydrogen. And the leftover of hydrogen can be used for the transport. So I think that's a great uh, example of how how to use uh, this uh, collaboration part that we have an industry that are using hydrogen that, or that will start using hydrogen and then we can use it as well together and transporting these uh, heavy goods from uh, from Ovaco steel uh, plant uh, but but I think uh, we will see more and more green hydrogen production and I, I've also read in Australia for example there is this um, new uh, solar plant where they will start producing tons of uh, renewable hydrogen and there are many ongoing projects as well we have many offshore wind uh, parks coming up here in sweden and also in other places in europe so at the moment we don't see so much green hydrogen uh, but i think in a couple of years we will see more and more green hydrogen so, so Monica, as a fuel and energy expert for a a vehicle manufacturer, a commercial vehicle manufacturer, what's the biggest challenge, the te- biggest technical challenge you have in front of you when, when you go in front of your desk and start working? Wh- what's the, the elephant in the room? Uh, yeah, uh, there, are, there are many challenges, of course, but... I, I like to see them as challenges and not the disadvantages or something because I need I think we need to really work together and focusing on how to reduce these uh, CO2 emissions in order to reduce the climate impact and so on. Um, so I think this uh, collaboration is very important. And then, of course collaboration between supplier of hydrogen is very important. But as I said, it's also important to work with other industries using hydrogen today and to work together. That's really important for us and to have sustainable product. I mean, I would not like to put a vehicle, uh, an alternative vehicle to the market um, that we have today. For example, we have the diesel vehicle. I, I would like not like to be part of putting an alternative vehicle to the market which is worse than what we already have. So I think it's very important to work on sustainability for the complete vehicle. And I'm only working on on the fuel, but it's very important to work on the complete vehicle and life cycle assessment 
etc. In order to, I mean, have these sustainable vehicles in the market in a couple of years. I think that's very important. And I think as an ultra marathoner, I think we know you can finish the line, right? You finish the race. I mean, uh, I think we're in good hands. Yeah, and and I think it's I can relate a lot of my ultra marathons to my work because it's really about not giving up, and it's a lot of, I mean, taking small steps in a time and try to to focus on the finish line. Even though you take small step at a time, I think yes, I think we will be there, and uh, I'm really positive in in working together with my colleagues, and I think they are doing a great job. And I think everybody are so motivated in order to get these vehicles, sustainable vehicles, on the road. And I think we will manage. I think you speak very well for our industry, Monica. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, maybe when we finally see uh, the grid uh, that is working uh, using renewable energy, I think uh, you know we have. Uh, maybe uh, finish the course, uh, run the race, and uh, then we go off to the next challenge. <laughs> Whatever that may be, right? Yes. Thank you very much. That was a great summary, I think. <laughs>